This is the Nasty Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Today, we're joined by international legal expert Asla Bali, who's a law professor at UCLA and currently a visiting law professor at Yale, and Michael Wahid Hanna, who's a senior fellow at the Sundry Foundation and not perhaps known to all of you, is also a lawyer with an international law background. Uh, Asla and Michael, uh, great to have uh, you both here talking with us today. Thanks so much for having us. Glad to be here. Today, we want to frame our conversation uh, around the question of what uh, has become of international law and international human rights law as a framing and organizing principle uh, for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so before we get into some s- specifics, uh, Asla, I want to ask you uh, to talk a little bit about what has happened uh, to the, the the power or influence or the centrality of questions of international law and legality uh, in the formation of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East? Yeah. Um, well, with respect to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, I think that international legality has never been fully a framing device for the U.S., but international law had a really important role as part of the kind of foreign policy toolkit of a Cold War United States that was seeking to offer a legitimating frame more broadly beyond the Middle East um, for its actions. And partly it connected to this core notion of American exceptionalism in which the United States was at pains to describe its own interests as coterminous with those of the world. And one way of doing that was to use the language of international law to suggest that U.S. action was always guided in this way by a set of normative um, commitments that commanded consensus in the international system and that advanced a broader global project of prosperity, of peace. International law was critical in making that case. In a post-Cold War period, I think the value attached to international law for those kinds of framings has eroded generally. And with respect to international human rights law in particular, there has been uh, something that was latent, present throughout, um, but really came to the fore to begin with in the 70s and 80s as human rights became part of a kind of um, a significant tool, if you want, in the Cold War conception of characterizing one block versus another and characterizing in particular a a particular set of rights, civil and political rights, as the premier rights valued in the international legal order, human rights gained a kind of primacy in thinking about American foreign policy um, framings. And then this persisted in the post-Cold War period for a time. But what we have seen, and again, as I suggest, something that was latent in any case, this instrumental use of international human rights framings, is that international human rights has increasingly become a language weaponized um, against adversaries and completely absent in relationships with allies. Now, in the Middle East, this has very um, important implications because many of the U.S.'s closest allies in the region are themselves actors with notorious human rights um, you know, catalogs of human rights violations. And the complete silence on that sort of front not only cheapens the reference to international law or international human rights law more generally, but has significant corrosive effects in the ways that the United States seeks to project its power as a kind of, you know, if you want international police power, a global policing actor in the Middle East, because it's completely detached from a normative account of what American um, an American order is supposed to provide. So whereas once international law was a vocabulary for suggesting that American an American-based order was one that would provide the sort of infrastructure for peace, for prosperity, and so forth, now 
denuded of those kinds of claims, and especially sharply so in the Middle East, I think what you have instead is a kind of raw power of the United States in dictating um, a, a sort of framework for the region that increasingly is one that is not only unappealing on its terms because of its sort of the absence of this, uh, any kind of normative account of what purpose it serves for the people in the region, but also is sharply uh, sort of exacerbating underlying tensions that have fundamentally destabilized the region. And so it makes evident the ways in which the power that the United States exerts in the name of sort of global policing is in fact itself tied directly to exacerbation of violence. Yeah, I mean, I think that that hypocrisy that Asla is pointing out is is obviously true and has always been true. I mean, you know, the aspirational normative commitments have never been the primary way in which U.S. interests and U.S. actions have been uh, framed and justified. Um, what I would add is that um, this sort of gross instrumentalization of human rights, that, that sort of complete uh, hypocrisy that is on offer now, um, does have real corrosive real-life impacts. Um, and, uh, you know, if you talk to activists in places like Egypt, um, who have, have always known that the sort of hypocritical bedrock that is uh, U.S. commitment to human rights, what they would what they would note is that um, the they 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 would happily accept in some ways uh, the hypocritical invocations of human rights uh, because they did have at times real impact on uh, on on the region on the governments of the region um, and that. Uh, losing that uh, even hypocritical invocation of human rights um, has been detrimental to them. Um, and, um, you know, we, we can see this uh, in the ways in which, say, the Egyptian regime um, has from time to time uh, responded on the margins, uh, but at least responded to, to this uh, language of human rights. Um, and, and, you know, undercutting that completely um, does have an impact. Uh, and so I think people have long been aware of the, hi the hypocrisy involved here, but were uh, willing to at least try to use that to their advantage. So let, let me ask, Asla, if you can, if you can give us some, some concrete examples that elaborate on some of the arguments you and Michael just, just outlined. Um, you know, yeah, there was, a, there was a sort of fake debate in the 2000s about whether international law really constrained or controlled behavior, but that's not what its proponents ever argued. They just argued that it was one uh, one pathway to norm setting that that could act as as a constraint. Um, and so, I guess I, I want to know: were there uh, tangible tangible impacts or tangible benefits of things like R two P or of the ICC or other of the sort of international tools that emerged at the end of the Cold War uh, that either constrained the behavior of America? And its allies, or that uh, visibly constrained the misbehavior of of its its rivals. So um, those are not necessarily doctrines. The ones you particularly invoked, R two P, or the creation of the ICC, that ever had any prospect of constraining the United States, because both of them are tied directly to the Security Council, uh, and as such, they are subject to American veto. So they could never be deployed in ways that would be constraining of American interest. They were, again, framings that in the 2000s, in a moment of a kind of unipolar order, were, if anything, ways of channeling U.S. power, if you want, uh, in the direction of 
one or another set of goals. So the notion there being that, for example, the presence of international criminal laws, a mechanism for accountability, might generate another way in which, in the face of a kind of destabilizing conflict, international tools were available for holding um, bad actors, let's say, accountable, but always on the understanding that those who were subject to that kind of accountability were first determined through the Security Council, and as a consequence, were never going to be um, any actors that were significantly tied to the national security interest uh, as defined by any of those permanent members. So I think, again, I mean, it's important to understand what international law can and can't offer. I think a different way of thinking about the constraining power of international law is what happens when the United States acts clearly without authorization in the face of a denial of authorization, which is what happened in the Iraq war when the United States was at pains to go down the path of you know, finding some way of laundering its project through the UN Security Council and was unable to do so. Was it constrained in the sense that it was prevented from engaging in aggressive war? No, of course not. But it did face a set of constraints that then caused a course correction in some respects from the Bush administration because there was an enormous soft power uh, price to be paid for having, um, you know, devalued the security architecture the United States itself had authored to the point that it completely set aside the clear sort of international law frame that should and would have governed whether or not the United States could simply engage in coercive action in the face of you know, alleged weapons of mass destruction, uh, resolution violations, and simply sidestep the UN Security Council altogether and engaged in a, a coercive use of force. Again, was it constrained from doing so? No. But did it then face international constraints of one kind or another in order to get back together some kind of coalition to distribute the costs of its actions, it did have to do that. It had to come back into the fold in a variety of ways, re-engage with the UN system, essentially persuade actors and institutions to enable it to do what it had historically done, namely subcontracting aspects of management of its global police power to other nations. And the most obvious example of that is the earlier Iraq war in 1991, when the um, you know, financial costs, but also the diplomatic costs and the ultimately even personnel costs of that uh, intervention and the decade plus of sanctions and no-fly zones and so forth that were put in place as a consequence of that intervention were widely borne, were not exclusively borne by the United States. That was not possible in 2003 and its immediate aftermath because there is at least uh, a way in which channeling U.S. power through international institutions and international law produces a different set of calculations, both for the United States and for those that it wants to act in concert with. Failure to do so has its consequences. Yeah, and the, and the kind of con- constraint that I had in mind wasn't uh, uh, sort of for- forcing the U.S. not to do something, but was more uh, if the U.S. is invested in a, in a certain set of international norms, they might voluntarily exhibit restraint, um, or in the example you said about the first Gulf War in the, in the 90s, uh, wait to do things with partners because they don't want to be seen as contravening this order that's to their to their benefit. Sorry, Michael, you're about to say. Uh, but go ahead. Go ahead, Asa. The point I wanted to make, though, was that responsibly protect as a doctrine is an enabling doctrine to, uh, far from constraining the U.S. or actors like the United States, it is a doctrine that provides an additional accretion of circumstances in which use of force is permitted. So it erodes the prohibition on the use of force to the extent that it provides a new rationale uh, on humanitarian grounds for using force. So one wouldn't expect R2P uh, to be constraining. And then similarly, the ICC, um, if 
because the United States is not subject to its jurisdiction, doesn't really even have that kind of, kind of constraining force, the kind you're describing. So I just want to say that the way the innovations in the 2000s um, that you're pointing to are actually examples of the way that in a unipolar order, the United States has increasingly been able to use international law as a mechanism for exerting greater power rather than sort of the original architecture of the UN, which was which traded on the kind of logic you were just presenting, namely the notion of some kind of enlightened self-interest that would that would cause the United States to impose self-constraint in some way in order to be able to go along uh, and have the support of the institutional machinery that it created in large part to manage its own hegemonic position in the international order. That kind of constraint, which the UN system more broadly in its use of force architecture does um, offer, has over the last 20 years been um, dramatically eroded in part by the innovation of doctrines like the ones that you cited, which provide new rationales um, beyond the four corners of what was originally set up as a set of constraints on use of force, and partly because of the willingness of the United States to simply part ways with those kind of legitimating frameworks of international law. Well, and on R2P, I think it's it's illuminating the ways in which, in a unipolar moment, the United States somehow, uh, and many analysts, convinced themselves that R2P uh, through accretion and practice was somehow becoming uh, a kind of customary international law. And of course, that that wasn't true. Uh, you know, Russia and China um, have, have for many years uh, made their objections known. Um, and, uh, and, and, and while they have sort of grudgingly accepted pieces of the doctrine, um, you know, for them, it has always been clearly tied to the Security Council um, and the need for Security Council authorization. And I think what's ironic in some ways is that um, the moment when we see Russia and China uh, at least not standing in the way of, uh, of, uh, of an R2P intervention of sorts in Libya, um, you have a moment when the United States uh, and its allies um, abuse the mandate given to them. Uh, and I think we we still have underestimated the the kind of impact of uh, the uh, Libya intervention on perceptions of uh, of U.S. power, um, perceptions of R2P, uh, what was you know sanctioned at least uh, through a, a Russian um, abstention at Security Council as a narrow uh, effort to protect civilians in Benghazi. Um, became became uh, almost immediately um, uh, an, uh, an operation for regime change. Um, and to the extent that the Russians and Chinese had reservations, which they did, um, about what they saw as an infringement on state sovereignty, which is problematic in and of itself, um, all of those uh, all of those concerns uh, were magnified by what happened in in Libya. Um, and that's something we're going to have to contend with to the extent that um, many wanted to see a kind of responsible state practice grow around uh, this notion of limitations on sovereignty. Uh, what happened in Libya has really undermined the, that prospect. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benaim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, 
We're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. This is the Nasdaq Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Asla Bali and Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, we were just talking about the erosion of uh, the norms of sovereignty before the break. Um, and Asla, you were uh, you were ready to say something about that. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add and, and return to Michael's earlier excellent point about um, the ways in which the just full abandonment of a kind of international human rights-based uh, account of normative legitimacy has left um, civil society and other actors within U.S. allies, I mean, people who are trying to pursue goals in Egypt, which was the example that he gave, just unable to use um, U.S. policy as a reference point anymore. And, and the ways in which the United States has sort of eroded an account of human rights is relevant to an ordering practice in the region. And then connect that to the points that Michael just made about Libya, because what the United States is failing to provide at some level through the sort of abdication of these um, you know, normative scripts is precisely what Michael pointed to with respect to human rights. But more generally, if the United States, I mean, the account Michael gave was if the United States, even hypocritically, was invoking human rights, then in some level, many Egyptians would be would accept a kind of Pax Americana arrangement that at least made that language and vocabulary available to them to make demands on their regime. More broadly, I would say, if the United States were able to accomplish um, the basic commitments in international law to peace and stability, to preserving the core attributes of sovereignty, then much of the region might be willing to acquiesce in a Pax Americana ordering for the region. But those are no longer, um, if ever they were, but are certainly no longer on offer from the United States. What Libya demonstrates beyond the abuse of uh, international law mandate for regime change purposes is that U.S. exertions of police power in the Middle East are now marked by incredible, severe challenges of coherence, of competence, of the ability to provide order. In fact, quite to the contrary, what is increasingly evident, maybe more so in the Middle East than in other areas, is that American international police power generates violence and disorder where it is used from Iraq to Libya, and for that matter, where its allies with its tacit support or active support um, employ coercive force, as we see in Yemen. And so what is the promise then of what the United States might deliver as the key broker of uh, regional distribution of power in the Middle East? Um, you know, I think that the retreat from sort of languages, normative languages of human rights and international law is illustrative of a broader idea of the ways in which now American presence in the region has become both so transactional and so instrumentalized to other goals that for the region itself, it produces a completely unsustainable um, prescription for disorder in ways that doesn't even serve the interests of allies. And as a consequence, what you see in a circumstance where to begin with, due to the dysfunctions domestically in the United States, allies can't know what the actual direction of American policy is. So one minute, a nuclear deal is concluded with Iran. The next minute, it's repudiated by the same government a kind of whiplash where every four years there's a possibility of a 180 degree turn in American priorities and objectives for the region. What that generates is a, a need to, um, to take measures that would allow states in the region, even amongst the closest allies of the United States, to have some kind of backup plan or some kind of ability to 
um, you know, multiply the sources of support that they can seek. And so you see, even in the midst of an escalating conflict with Iran, overtures for greater diplomatic engagement with Iran as a kind of backstop against um, the perceived instability of U.S. prerogatives for the region, or an increasing toehold for Russia and so forth. And all of these are sort of tied to the ways in which the exertion of American power sort of um, separated from or diverging from a coherent account of what the regional ordering goals are, which one could argue was once implicit in a kind of international law frame, could be implicit in any other set of sort of commitments that the United States as an overarching matter is pursuing, but today are absent in general for the Middle East, that has generated a circumstance in which all actors in the region feel the need to uh, develop backstops for what's, what is increasingly a kind of incoherent American position. What's, I, I, that, I agree with all that. Um, I would add one small caveat, and that is uh, that there remains uh, and some, a somewhat inexplicable, in my mind, um, abiding faith in, in the capacity of American intervention um, to effectuate uh, uh, you know, uh, positive goals. And, and I think part of this is desperation and circumstance. So when we see the calls in the region um, for those who supported uh, um, uh, the, you know, the, the rebel uh, movement against uh, the regime of, of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, um, you know, we saw throughout the war calls by many in the region, obviously on the anti-Assad side in particular, uh, but many opposed to Assad, um, who uh, remained um, somehow convinced of uh, of the utility uh, of American intervention. Um, and of course, we, we see this mirrored in our own debates about the wisdom of, of interventionism. Um, and you would have thought um, that this, uh, at this point, uh, post 9-11 history of, uh, of ineffectual uh, and counterproductive interventions uh, would have produced at least some humility about the consequences of American uh, military action in the region. Um, but there remains, uh, you know, a, a belief in some quarters that it's, uh, you know, this isn't a fundamental flaw, but a, a flaw of execution that can be uh, uh, remedied in the next intervention. And I think that's problematic. We're going to take a quick break. Citizenship and its Discontents is a Century Foundation initiative that brings together dozens of researchers to explore identity, inclusion, and community in the contemporary Middle East. Our contributors conducted extensive fieldwork in the region and aimed to open a new line of discussion in the Middle East and among Western policymakers. To see our research and join the discussion, please visit the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and click on the Citizenship tab. You'll find our research reports, interviews, podcasts, videos, and more. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm joined by Asla Bali and Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, we're talking about international law and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Uh, right before the break, Michael wondered about why why is there still a constituency of people who seem to think that that the U.S. can use force to somehow transform the Middle East for good. Uh, and that actually leads right into a question I wanted to ask you, Asla. Uh, you've recently affiliated with the Quincy Institute, which I think is concerned, among other things, with, with arguing for a demilitarization of uh, U.S. foreign policy. 
Um, and I want to know, uh, I mean, you can talk more broadly about the project of, of, of Quincy, but I want to know how destructive has the U.S. Uh, campaign of assassinations and drone strikes been, uh, which has been a bipartisan feature of, of, of the so-called global war on terror for nearly 20 years. Uh, how, how much impact has that had worldwide on, uh, on security and on sort of the, this, this feature you described, sort of un, unmaking the world uh, while claiming to be policing it? Yeah, I mean, I think one, and this really does connect, as you just pointed out to Michael's previous points, because I think what you have concomitant with this increasing willingness of the United States to resort to force in a wide arena, right, 800 military bases worldwide, almost completely unconstrained global battlefield in the global war on terror where drone strikes or targeted killings could really take place in almost any part, corner of the world beyond the first world. So, you know, what, what AFRICOM might want to frame, what CENCOM is going to do in the Middle East, what's, what's possible in Asia and Southeast Asia. It's really a remarkable stretch. But in the meantime, at the same time that you have this, and as you point out, bipartisan sort of support for uh, the large military footprint, and not just a footprint, but one in which increasingly uh, any constraint on the use of force is uh, eroded in the face of technologies that make it possible to engage in what appear to be targeted strikes here and there and everywhere. But that is combined at the same time with the story that Michael was telling, which is that um, the United States increasingly makes evident that it is in, unable to translate these capabilities, the capability to use force everywhere and anywhere with increasingly sophisticated military t technologies, but unable to translate these capabilities into outcomes. So, and we could just go through the litany of the things that we've already described and discussed. The overthrow of Saddam does not produce anything like a durable stability in Iraq or any idea of what a coherent, um, future for Iraq might look like. Uh, the Libya intervention results in successful overthrow, but they collapse and proliferation of armed militias and civil war. Support for the Saudi and UAE intervention in Yemen not only fails to decisively alter the outcome, but produces a humanitarian nightmare that threatens to metastasize. Declarations that Assad must go, you know, connected to strikes around chemical weapons use has little impact on the outcome in Syria, even as resources are driven in the direction of rebels and so on. So the faith that it's not just that the United States, um, you know, there's, there's some corrosion in the idea of, you know, can it competently or coherently engage in force? In fact, it is able to accomplish the tactics that it's pursuing, right? The person that's being targeted gets killed. The regime that is going to be overthrown is overthrown. But the challenge is that those kinds of tactical capacities are, are absolutely um, independent of, of an ability to even define what a coherent outcome would look like. And in this context, understanding what these drone strikes and targeted killings are doing, in addition to the violence and disorder that they produce in the places where they occur, they're actually just as much part of a U.S. decline story as they are any longer uh, a kind of part of a narrative of the United States competently providing global policing worldwide. So, I mean, in that context, I think there are very strong domestic and international arguments for why uh, we need a very fundamental rethink about the approach that the United States is taking. This is very evident in the, in, in the Middle East, but it's evident more broadly that this would require an idea, and this is where the kind of Quincy Institute project comes in, of how do we engage in threat deflation? How do we reorient American policies, military and otherwise, around a sort of 
sensible, coherent account of what the actual threats are in the international community, in the international and the global arena to which the United States should be responding. There are no existential threats emanating from any particular rival, contrary to kind of the Cold War mentality that we continue to drag with us into a very much post-Cold War and maybe even post-War on terror moment. Rather, you have threats that are emanating from um, global phenomena, climate change, um, financial crisis, et cetera. And we have no way of even connecting policies meaningfully to those. And our, our chosen um, toolkit, for the most part, is coercive. So it's not only about the drone strikes and military engagements, kinetic uses of force. It's also uh, the other choice, privileged choice at the moment in the toolkit for foreign policy is sanctions. And I mean, that's falsely presented as if it's an alternative to a coercive approach because coercion is understood in military terms. These are both deeply coercive um, engagements that devalue diplomacy and that produce uh, outcomes that, that, again, are not easily tied to any coherent objective. Uh, so you can immiserate foes around the world. You can engage in strikes that kill off this and that person. But none of these get you any closer to a set of um, outcomes that could even be described as being in the American interest, let alone uh, an account of American interests that are consistent with global interests. So I do think, back to your point, that the use of these kinds of um, technologies to generate an even greater battlefield in which the United States is able to resort to force at its own discretion is both problematic on its own terms because of the kind of violence and disorder it produces, but also actually should be understood as part of the ways in which American power projection and influence is declining because of the consistent demonstration that these uses of force do not produce outcomes that are in the control of or remotely attached to sets of interests that the United States has defined for its own goals in these regions. I mean, I... I I would differ slightly in how I would describe that because I think obviously there has been uh, an erosion in in, um, in the ability of America to project power abroad and to project that competently and produce uh, sustainable, durable outcomes to the better. Uh, but I, I don't I don't think that is evidence of decline of power per se. Um, I think what American power is being asked to do is fundamentally different. Um, and so I think we're in a, we have been for quite a number of years now in, uh, in a period of interest creep uh, where American power is being asked to do things that it wasn't asked to do, even at the kind of height of its power uh, in, in the post-World War II arena. Um, if we look at the ways in which the United States engaged abroad, um, I mean, Vietnam being one obvious example, uh, but even looking at Reagan's intervention, uh, short-lived as it was in Lebanon, um, the expectations of what American power could do, particularly in the context of civil conflicts in, in the Middle East, um, was quite different. Uh, and uh, when Reagan uh, intervened, uh, sent forces to Lebanon and, and pulled them out, uh, one, the domestic politics around that was quite different. There was no hysteria about uh, America and its commitment to uh, to the world and its uh, and its role therein. Um, but something had changed in in the post Cold War era when American power was asked to do things that it never did before. Um, and so there's a kind of a historical judgment uh, about the efficacy of American uh, power projection and force. 
um, that is tied to, I think, a mythical past. Uh, America wasn't engaged militarily around the world to transform societies and produce uh, sustainable political outcomes in the Cold War. That, that's not what was going on. Uh, and so, yes, the United States was engaged in proxy conflicts, was, was, was uh, projecting power in various ways, but the asks of American power to overthrow Saddam and to produce a sustainable democratic order, that's, that's not something that was ever a part of the, uh, uh, the repertoire of American power projection. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you one, um, uh, how legal uh, is the approach that the U.S. has taken towards the, the kind of maximal sanctions applied uh, to Iran? Um, and two, how effective uh, or, I mean, I presume ineffective, should we presume these kinds of sanctions regimes to be at actually affecting uh, their stated goals? Yeah, so I think um, with respect to the sanctions um, question and its efficacy first, that depends on defining a set of goals that the sanctions are supposed to produce. And I think it's very hard to um, identify other than this kind of maximal idea that the sanctions are going to cause Iran to fully uh, aligned with American priorities for the region in every respect, so, cut off all ties to its proxies, alter fundamentally its own internal domestic political ordering, et cetera. I mean, the, the statements that we've had from the administration, notably from the um, Secretary of State Pompeo, and when he was still in his role, John Bolton, are so outlandish as to suggest that there isn't really a set of coherent goals that can be described in any terms other than regime change for the purpose of these sanctions. And sanctions are very poorly calibrated to that goal. So if the goal is to alter, um, without engaging in military force, the fundamental character of the government of another country, there is very little evidence in any historical record that sanctions accomplish that end. Quite to the contrary, with respect to those kinds of goals, what you have is an empowering of hardliners both economically as a consequence of the fact that they are better able to navigate in an environment of resource scarcity where they're basically pushed into autarky by the absence of um, in increasing sort of erosion of trade ties with the rest of the world. Hardliners become economically more powerful, certainly politically more powerful. There's a defensive nationalism that gets produced. Um, and more broadly, the United States is also undermining its relationships with other allies in coordinating policy with respect to Iran by threatening them with secondary sanctions. The mechanism that's being used here uh, basically are a set of crude threats of manipulating humanitarian suffering to cajole others. The question of how this should be understood in terms of international law is a complicated one, but increasingly there are resemblances between these kinds of maximum pressure campaigns and blockades of old. I mean, this is really where sanctions now essentially shade into military engagement because in order to enforce the sets of sanctions as they get broader and broader that increasingly isolate Iran, you're going to see a militarization of the Persian Gulf. You're going to see a fortifying of the borders of Iran uh, with countries that are unwillingly coerced along into this U.S. project, which is taking financial relationships that the United States has as a global financial hub and weaponizing them in ways that turn global finance into a, a mechanism for extraterritorializing U.S. foreign policy projects. But again, it's one thing to assess that on its own, and it's another thing to note that the foreign policy that's being pursued here is really disconnected from any coherent goal, uh, ultimate outcome that is supposed to be shaped by the deployment of sanctions of this kind. That's in distinction from 
you know, other sanctions regimes that might be used in tandem with a set of diplomatic initiatives. And there you can have all kinds of criticisms and um, debates about whether or not they're properly tailored or in what ways they might be tailored and so forth. But this kind of broad use of sanctions to essentially strangle the economy of another country and force third party countries along with you for strangulation purposes, I think is going to generate a number of outcomes. It is, while it's not clear to me that there's an existing international law doctrine that may limit the ways in which the United States is pursuing this at the moment, this could generate some new norms because the objections worldwide to the, to the sort of tactics that the United States uh, is using are growing. I mean, countries are increasingly trying to produce new instruments by which they can avoid you, you know, global financial systems that the United States um, is currently deploying to enact these sanctions across third countries. And you might find also new lawmaking around limitations on this kind of, this new sort of 21st century iteration of siege warfare. Really quick, is something like designating the central bank of a foreign country an act of war? I mean, one has to ask whether, to begin with, designating as a terrorist actor a branch of the military of a foreign country May, you know, leaves any coherent room in international law for what these designations mean. I mean, how, how does one take branches of government and, and designate them in these ways, whether it's the central bank or it's the Revolutionary Guard Corps, what does that do to the logic, just the internal coherence of the underlying norms? I think it really strains them. Um, and to the breaking point, potentially, uh, first of all, of the willingness of other countries to go along and continue to support a consensus around these kinds of designations, and maybe in ways that ultimately will produce new kinds of lawmaking that constrain the ability of states to unilaterally make these kinds of designations. Asla, thank you so much for your time. I would love to talk to you for another hour, but uh, I appreciate the time you were able to make uh, to appear on our podcast. And uh, uh, thanks for all your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Michael, thank you. Oh, me too. Thanks, Nancy. PCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook.